Hey guys, welcome back to How They Train. I'm uh, honestly really excited about today's guest. Aaron Royal is a two-time Olympian and Commonwealth Games medalist representing Australia in triathlon. He spent the last 10 or so years on the world stage in short course triathlon, including stepping onto multiple ITU podiums, which honestly is one of the hardest things to do in triathlon. He's also slowly added in some long course racing over the past few years where he's already become an Ironman 70.3 champion. Aaron, welcome, mate. How's everything going in your life at the moment? Yeah, cheers, mate. Um, yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. I've just uh, come to the end of my off-season break, and so the period in the year where we actually get to try and be a little bit normal and do some stuff outside of actually just doing bike and run. So just got back from a holiday from Iceland a couple of weeks ago or a week ago now, and um, yeah, slowly just starting to get the body moving. But it's it's been honestly probably one of the most stressful years in my my career. I am. Um, an Olympic year always throws up that sort of that sort of extra stress, but um, yeah, I mean, I guess we'll go into it a little bit more um, the year and, and and my training around the year. But uh, yeah, it was a kind of a stressful year, so I really took the time this year to to have a good break and just mentally unwind. Yeah, well, let I mean, let's jump straight into it. Um, obviously, something I'm really I'm really interested to hear about is um, is your year because you're a two-time Olympian. Um, your first one was, was 2016 in, in Rio. Um, and then obviously this year in, in Tokyo, um, let's start at Tokyo. So maybe we start with the build into Tokyo. How was your training going? Um, what did it look like? Yeah. So oh, well, obviously, um, as we all know, COVID and, and whatnot delayed the Olympics from, from 2020. And that was the first challenge for, for all the athletes. And I will say that it, it probably didn't work in my favor. I think obviously I'm getting a little bit older, so a year on in short course racing is is quite a long time. And personally, I think in 2020, I, the, the training and the preparation that we had from say January through to March was just perfect. Uh, I didn't have any niggles. I was hitting times probably better than I ever have in swim, bike, and run. And I just felt fit and ready to go. And I was, I was just really excited for for the year ahead. And and that was say up until March, just before over in Europe the the pandemic, and not long after in Australia the really hit and, and put things to a halt. And then we, we sort of took a step back from the rigors of, say, 30 hours of training a week. And um, in that period, say from March 2020 through till basically the end of the year, and just sort of pegged things back a little bit um, in, in training senses, just to try and get ourselves uh, mentally refreshed for what will be a, obviously a big 2021. And I don't know whether we um, pulled the reins back a little bit too much in hindsight, Maybe you could say that, but then once we stepped in, stepped into it again, say January this year, uh, maybe even just pr- prior to Christmas last year, where the, the sort of season starts to the wind up or the or the preseason training, I just found that my body didn't adapt or 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 um, accept the the thirty thirty two hours of training a week that you you normally used to accustomed to, and and sort of. On the back of that, come January, February time, I, I tore my calf a little bit and then had some Achilles niggles that sort of hung around basically all year. And it just was really, really hard to get on top of. And so I would say that my lead into the games, whilst um, I did the best that I could with what I had, ultimately, it just wasn't wasn't quite enough to, to stand on that start line and, um, and know deep down that I've, I'm in absolutely perfect shape. And, and that's that's the thing with with niggles, especially uh, for me, the run is the one that I need to work on the most, and and the one that takes a lot of time. And and when that was hampered a little bit, it just it just was really really hard to get on top of. And you know, I guess if we talk about it in terms of you know pace, the running pace, um, I was really really struggling to get down to anything. You know, say up until June this year, anything remotely close to running race pace in in training that is just because of the the niggling Achilles. So yeah, it had its challenges, obviously COVID and then a few niggles um, aside, but uh, yeah, you got to do the best you can with the situation that you're thrown in and that's what I could do. Yeah. So I want to try and unpack all of that if I can, but just straight away, um, something that I reckon none of us can actually relate to who haven't been to the Olympics or or on a start start line that's that's quite that um, monumental is... What's it like standing there in a sport as competitive as short course triathlon where to be even remotely competitive, you, you have to be at the top of your game knowing that you're not? Yeah, it's, uh, of, of course, <laughs> I think athletes 
in, in all sports, not just triathlon. They're probably the, the best at trying to lie on themselves. So, of course, you're trying to tell yourself, I'm ready. You, know, you try and convince yourself that, that you're absolutely ready to go. But um, in reality, I probably, yeah, was just missing that couple of percent. And I guess what how I can describe it, um, you know, there's been times where I'm going into races where I'm, I'm confident. I know my form's there. Um, I've done everything in training that I've needed to do and I've stand on that start line and you, you have this certain, you, the nerves are still there, but you have this certain excitement um, knowing that you're in good form and you're ready to race. And I'd say the difference with times where you're not is that you're nervous and you're also worried about that what if I don't perform factor and you don't really have those doubts when things go perfectly leading into a game. And, and for sure, yeah, I, I had those, I guess those doubts, those those little bit of what if in, in the back of your mind thinking, uh, you know that it's just not quite where you wanted it to be. If that makes sense? Yeah, it does. And how long into the race before you sort of realised I'm not going to have my dream day today? Um, well, so going back a step, I guess a little bit. Um, my role as well at the Olympics was to play more of a team team role. So I guess if you look at it in um, cycling terms, I was the domestique on for. Uh, for Jake, Jake Bertwistle, he he's been the Australian that's shown that he can in the last couple of years uh, medal at that top top level. So whilst I still wanted to get the best result I could for myself, um, a successful games for me um, wasn't necessarily about my own individual result. So to, to answer your question, I guess uh, it, I, I personally didn't feel well or right or that it was my day. My legs just weren't there pretty early on. If I'm honest, I didn't have the swim that I normally do. Uh, I was off the back foot from the start and then um, trying to contribute to that chase pack to help Jake get to the front. I just, again, it just took out more energy than it normally would. And, and yeah, starting the run, it was just basically a bit of a battle from the start. Yeah. But no, those things happen, I guess. And, and, and like, like I've said before, you know, a lot of people go to the Olympic games and only a small percentage come away actually satisfied with their result. Unfortunately for me, Tokyo just, just didn't, live up to my expectations that I had on myself and, and as we had on ourselves as a, as a team, as Triathlon Australia. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm going to just, I'm just going to go back a step a second. So you've obviously talked about the injury. Um, what did your block look like in, into Tokyo? So I, I know it's obviously, it was probably a little bit all over the place with the, with the, the calf and Achilles. Um, but yeah, if you could like sort of give us an insight into, you know, what the, the main training block did look like. Did you know your role was going to be more as a domestic even then? And so were you, were you focusing on the swim and the bike or, or were you still thinking um, about your individual performance and, and doing everything you could to put your own performance together? And yeah, just, just take us inside that, that last block leading into the games. Yeah. So when I said earlier at the podcast, how it was a, a stressful year um, and I mentioned uh, obviously COVID and then injuries. And also uh, we were trying to get three spots for the Olympics. So, I mean, it's a complicated process, but basically yeah, get three spots. You need to have three athletes by the top 30. Um, and I was that one of those athletes that had to try and get the points. And so this relates to your question because uh, in the period where I would have been just fully focused on preparing for the games that that one event I was off in um uh well I did Yokohama then I went to Leeds then I had to fly straight to Mexico then come back and then try and prepare for the game so ideally I wouldn't have done all that um but in the end we did it and we got the three spots but then I so from that race in Mexico which was June so we're now talking about eight weeks before the Olympics seven weeks before the Olympics uh we went up to our normal altitude training camp in Font-Rameau in the Pyrenees. And the plan was to go there for about four weeks um, of, of altitude training and then uh, come down into Girona, which is quite warm. As we know, the, the Tokyo Olympics was was going to be hot and it, it was for the men's individual race. And we're going to do the last sort of two weeks there and do some heat preparation before flying to Tokyo a week before the race. And we learned from the test event. So we, we do a test event in 2019 leading into the, the Tokyo game that we, in that instance, in 2019, we went up to Flagstaff, which is a little bit higher, it's a bit hotter. And we tried to add in heat adaptation or heat preparation there. And trying to combine the two, heat and altitude, it's really, really hard to get right. And um, 
we noticed in our squad that no one really performed that well by trying to combine the heat and the, uh, the heat acclimation and the altitude together. And I, I think I'm no sport scientist, but I, I'm from what I've read is that you know your body really can't do the two, and so it's going to prioritise either trying to acclimate to the to the altitude or the temperature, one or the other. Um, and so yeah, we we decided that this year leading into Tokyo that we'll just do one which was the altitude training block and come down from that, recover for a couple of days and then do the last little bit of heat, heat acclimation. And I think that sort of worked a lot better than it did the year before. And, you know, I was with a training squad. So I trained with Joel Filio, which has, you know, Vincent Lewis, Mario Muller, Jake Burt, we saw Yellow Jeans, Martin Benriel, Katie Saveras, uh, my fiance, non Stanford. So there's quite a good squad there. And um, I guess, yeah, that, that's, that's how we prepared for the games. Yeah. And what specifically, like, sort of, were you doing? How, how much, um, like, swimming, riding, running were you doing? What, what were your sessions looking like? Um, how, was each, how was each discipline going? Yeah, so I guess if you give a, a brief overview of how our week looked in that, in that, at that time of the year, we're probably training about 30 hours a week, um, swimming six days a week with, with two of them hard swims, the rest of them aerobic. You know, getting around about that 5k per swim um, and a hard session may look like typically one of the swims would be about 15 to 1600 meters worth of hard swimming so for example it might be you know 2100s going too hard one easy and just hard is basically as hard as you can go on the sort of 130 cycle and another one might be more speed into thresholds and race pace sort of effort so it could be like a 50 sprint into a 200 sort of race pace effort to do that for you know, do that four or five times. Um, that's sort of how the, the swim program looked. Uh, we were riding, I'd say, about 400K a week, 350, 400K a week, two of them the hard sessions again, and you know some hill efforts. So one session might be eight times four minutes, basically up a hill, um, as hard as you can go. And then another hard session would be uh, an hour, um, just basically rolling turns as a group, as you know, at, at that race pace sort of effort. And then on the run, yeah, that very this is where it varies a lot within our squad. Obviously, some people respond better to higher volume, and some people a little bit less. But on average, I'd say we're running around about eighty to ninety kilometers a week. And again, two of them uh, are hard, are hard sessions. One of them's a track session, so it could be something like twenty four hundred on the track with two hundred jog in between. Or and then on the weekend on a on a Saturday session that's more of our long tempo. So a staple session that we do is an hour where you build every 20 minutes. So it might be 20 minutes at 3:30, 20 minutes at 3:20, 20 minutes at 3:10 pace um, for an hour. So it's kind of like not quite getting down to your race pace, but sort of just that long, uncomfortable sort of speed that I would call it. And I guess Joel doesn't really. That's our coach, Coach Joel. He doesn't really have the or follow the philosophy of that 80-20 principle. But I guess we kind of almost, if you break it down, we kind of almost do that anyway. Uh, but I wouldn't say that he sort of sticks to to that and, and make sure that the weeks follow that per se. But yeah, I think that's probably roughly where we would sit at about 80% of the endurance sort of base work and then 20% of the of the weekly total is, is yeah, high intensity or race pace sort of effort. Yeah, and um, I guess with ITU triathlon at the moment, and, and it's been going this way, um, you know, for the better part of, of this decade, is the swim is just crazy. So it's it's gone from being, uh, you know, it, it's always been fast, but but particularly since maybe like the, the Gomez-Brownlee era, it's, it's just gone crazy fast. And you're a big part of that. You've been a, a front pack ITU swimmer for, for all of your career. Um, and it's sort of shaped a lot of your successful races. So in those sessions, what kind of paces are you are you swimming? So like in your hundreds, your your race pace, two hundreds, four hundreds, etc. Yeah, what kind of what kind of times are you hitting? Yeah, so it's evolved quite a lot. You know, it, when I started the triathlon in, in well, triathlon world, race and world series back in 2013, 2012, uh, there was a big split. I guess you'd call it from the fastest swimmer to the slowest, and that's that's really narrowed now and you, and you see that in the races where it's a lot closer together on the men's side at least so we've had to get quicker as the, the guys that were behind have had to get quicker over the years as well but I would say and Vincent Lewis that's who I train with is one of the fastest swimmers I'll try and give you some of his times compared to compared to mine but because he's probably the fastest swimmer that I've I've ever trained with and I've, I've trained with a few you know Richard Varga who's 
always leading out the swims, but I, I, I've trained with Vince over the last couple of years, and I, and I think Vince is probably the fastest that I've, I've been with. Uh, but, yeah, to answer your question, if we're doing, say, that's so a normal session, like I said, would be 2100s going too hard and one easy. It's not that easy, but on the 130 cycle, so just making it. Uh, you're probably swimming long course 103s on the hard ones. Maybe if you're on a good day, down to 12s. If you're not feeling so good, 104s. And then, um, yeah, so you repeat that through for, for 15 of those hard. And then on the track, so Joel's philosophy is, and again, I've, I've trained with Jamie Turner, who had a, a good squad and, and obviously in leads here, so trained with the Brownleys. And they have slightly different philosophies to what Joel has. But, you know, when we get on the track, it's not about really, really running fast. Yeah, he's, he's famous saying, or what he always says to us is, make sure you finish the session with a bullet in the chamber. So, you know, you want to finish that you could go a bit more, but you haven't, and you're ready to go again the next day. Um, so if we're on the track doing 2,400s, we're probably starting at around about 3 or 5 pace and then finishing maybe 250 pace. So that's like, you know, 114s and then down to 66s, I would say. So for a track session, that's not super fast in terms in you know, IQ terms, but it's just that getting that long sort of, accumulative time at race pace or a little bit faster by the end without really, really beating the body up too much. Yeah. So, so just, uh, just out of curiosity, cause you did mention it and it sort of piqued my interest. Um, if you're swimming your hundreds, you know, in 102, 103, 104, and, and, and you, and you're saying Vincent Louise is like, he's the fastest swimmer you've ever swum with. And he led it, he led the, the swim out at the Olympics, didn't he? Um, yeah. What, what kind of pace is, is he hitting for that? Uh, <laughs> Vince is interesting. Yeah, we're all very competitive, but, um, you know, so Vince is faster than, than me. He's faster than Martin Ben Real, who also trains with us, who's um, probably more at my level. Vince tends to go maybe one second faster than whatever you go, <laughs> you know? So he, he always, he wants to be faster than, he wants to be faster than everyone. So if I'm swimming a 102, he'll swim a 101. <laughs> if I'm swimming a 104, he's swimming 103. He just kind of, you know, what, he, he, he wants to be the fastest. And so I think, um, Based off what we do, we just he's just going to stay like a body length in front of you. I, I could have the best best my best swim day. I could probably swim on. Well, I probably couldn't, but just for example, if I could swim on in one minute, he'll probably go fifty nine. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, he's he's just constantly probably that body length in front of in front of me and and Martin who who swim with him every day. Hey, um, I, I really, I'm, I may be asking this question a little bit too soon before we've gone into your, into your history of training, but I, I just have to ask it. So you've, you've trained with some of the, 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 the best triathletes of all time. Like you mentioned, you've trained with Alistair and Jonathan Brownlee. Um, you've trained with, um, Gwen Jorgensen. You've trained with Vincent Louis, you know, who would you, which one of the, the people you've trained with, do you cl- class as maybe, you know, the best triathlete you've ever trained with? Well, um, geez, that's a tough question. Uh, like you said, yeah, I have trained with a lot of the, the best triathletes there are. Hey, you put me on the spot here. I think, um, what, do you mean like the best, the best trainer or the one that's got the most out of themselves? You know, as in like may not be the best trainer, but has gone on and, and raced better than they ever have or better than they, they shown in training, sorry. Yeah. Well, I guess you could you could break it down however you like. Like if one of them if one of them um, fills one hole and one the other, like who's the best racer? Who who is the best when they're on their day? Who is the best consistently in training? Who who maybe who maybe doesn't you know who shouldn't be as good as what they are? Yeah, you you can take it wherever you want. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that, the reason I asked that is because yeah, I think um, yeah, I trained with the Brownies for a couple of years, and and for sure I think their training, whilst it's it's really good. Um, I don't think it's anything exceptional. I think they just have this ability to once it get once you get into the race day, get onto race day, the ability to hurt themselves far more than anyone else that I've ever trained with. I've I've trained with them leading into a race, and I, I start to go, oh, I think I can take these guys, and then we get onto the start line, and I'm a minute behind them. So I think they've got this ability to once they get onto the start line to flip that switch and be able to hurt more than anyone else. Whereas probably probably Vincent in training and then he's also very good in racing he just has this ability to almost absorb any amount of training I've, i never see him have a bad day he just turns up and he's always he's always really really strong now i think that's come from prior to coming to joel he, he did some crazy crazy weeks 
40 hours with 160k of running, 500k of, of bike in a week, and I don't know, 30k of swimming all in one week. And he's done that back to back to back. And he, he was often good off it, but then he was often broken as well. And so when he's come to Joel, I think he's just, it's almost been like, well, is that all you've got? <laughs> you know, what else are you giving me? And so he's, he's someone that I, that is just able to absorb a crazy amount of training and just never, never has a bad day. And I think you see that in his in his race, and unless he's been injured or what or whatnot, he's he turns up to most races, and you always know he's going to be a factor. So I guess yeah, to answer that, I think yeah, Vince is someone that just it's just consistently really good, and the Brownleys are someone that just always outperform themselves in racing compared to their training. Yeah, yeah, that's um that's so so fascinating, um, and that's an insight that that I don't think you really get get anywhere especially in triathlon um so yeah thanks for sharing that um i I just want to i want to go right back now because you've won you know you've won big races and you've been on on itu podiums but and and you'll have a i'm sure you'll have a different opinion to me but from the outside looking in i think the most impressed i've ever been by you in, in a race was the 2016 olympics um you finished ninth that day which Someone might look at your resume and be like, "Well, that's not close to his best result." Like, um, he, he's 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 done much bigger things. But you were you, triathlon was was so hot in 2016, and and ITU was at such a high level um, as it still is to this day. And you were in the front group from the swim. You were in the front group on the ride. Um, and you had like one of the best runs I reckon you've ever had. Can you take me into what your thoughts of, of that day were? Yeah, I mean, I, I do have a, di- a different opinion to, to what you've you've just mentioned. Then, um, to be honest, that was, and it still is, not as much as it was, but it still is a disappointing uh, a race for me, and and one that I don't look back on fondly. I guess over time, I've I've learned to be, appreciate the result and, and be pr- quite proud of of the fact that I was top ten at Olympic Games. And yeah, it is it is something to be proud of. But I, I went into that race. Um, believing that I could have medaled. At that point in my career, I was every bit, if not as good as Henry Schumann, who finished third. I don't think he had beat me prior to that race. And um, only a month or two earlier, I stood on the podium in Leeds, which I regard as probably my best performance uh, with Alistair and Jonathan Brownlee. Um, and I was in third at their home race in Leeds only two months before the Games with Javi Gomez in the race. Henry Scoom and all these guys that were at the Olympics. So to me, it, it still feels like a little bit of a disappointment. And to be honest, I've, I've never actually looked at the results. I've never opened up the results page. I couldn't tell you what time I ran. I couldn't tell you how, well, I can kind of guess how far I was behind the leaders. I couldn't tell you the guys that were just behind me. And because for me, it's just not something that I've been able to bring myself to look at, I guess. I have, however, watched the race back for the first time last year in, in lockdown on one of those long turbo rides where I actually looked back at it for the first time. So yeah, I, I guess it is still a little bit of a disappointment. Um, I wanted more for myself, and I, I believe I, I could have, on the day, done better than I did. But that's the way it rolls. I I, I said to myself, then on the start line, that um, whatever happens, if I finish the race giving absolutely everything that I've got, then I have to be proud of, of the result. And and I can say that I did that. There was just literally nothing left in the tank, and and that was the result that it, that I walked away with. So yeah. Now we're talking five years later, I guess. Yeah, we're five years, a bit over five years now. I'm starting to come around to it. And, and I, I'm for sure when I finish my career, I'll look back on that and will be proud of, of a top 10 performance. But you know, there's always going to be that thought in the back of my mind that I just probably didn't go as well as what I was hoping, I guess. Yeah. And I guess this is um, is what's so interesting about that is that I'm looking at it from the outside, looking looking in and, and you're on the inside. Um and when I was sort of thinking about about your performances leading into this podcast, the, the two that I really did come come down to as your best two were that Leeds race and and the Olympics not not that long after. Um, and I guess my memory of it is I, I was training leading into into that period um, with a, with a guy you used to train with, and we both thought that that same thing. We thought that the race at Rio would probably play out similar to Leeds that that you would be in in a swim breakaway with the Brownlee brothers probably probably right away with a group and and at that time you were running you know as well as the guys who were who were who were you know pure runners in the sport so we probably thought the same thing you thought that that you were a really good medal chance um and I guess I sort of still looked at it as a really great result because you were 
you sort of probably were, were right there, but but it does make sense that that you thought you you could have done done more. But it still is interesting how you look at it, like sort of so uh, as such a disappointment. Whereas whereas on the from the outside, I, I thought it was still a, a really brilliant race, and and I thought you I thought you did did fantastic. So um, I guess that speaks to the to the mindset of you as a, an, an elite an elite athlete who who just wants the best from themselves and, and doesn't accept any any less. Yeah, exactly. And and I think, um, yeah, you hit the nail on, on the head. We all, you know, go in with high aspirations. And, and like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, only if you walk away meeting those aspirations. So I, I know I'm definitely not alone in that. And, and um, yeah, it just quite didn't, didn't quite meet that expectation that I was hoping for. And, you know, you, you just touched on then probably you, you thought, you know, the Olympics and, and Leeds were my two best races. I think back as well, back to 2015 in Chicago, my place wasn't the best I've had. It was the grand final. I finished seventh, I think it was, but it was in a running race where everyone got off the bike together. And um, to me, I showed, I, you know, I finished seventh in a, I think it was a, maybe maybe my, my only and only time under 30 minutes off the bike where I could, you know, actually run with these guys. And so I, I sort of finished that year um, with the belief that going into the Olympic year that I could, I could do something quite special and, yeah, just didn't quite didn't quite meet that, but uh, yeah, like I said, that's how it is sometimes. Do you um do you remember that um, period of of training leading into the Olympics in 2016, and um and 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 what it looked like, and and was it one of the things that was shaping your confidence, or was it just race results? It it was a, a mixture of both, I guess. I do remember uh, the, the leading into 2016, and I remember some mistakes that I made in my training and preparation that. I, I think were ultimately what what cost me the result, um, the result that I was hoping for. So at least, which was probably eight weeks before the Olympics, I was in a really good place. Um, my body was good. You know, I was at a good so race weight, I guess we would call it. And and obviously that's a a really tricky fine line between finding the right weight and not being over or under. Or, and and ultimately, in between that Leeds race. And Rio, I just, I lost quite a bit of weight. I went into the altitude tent. Um, it was really hot where we were training in Vitoria in the Basque country of Spain. And I went from what was an ideal race weight and lost probably a couple of kilos in that period. Um, not actively, not, I wasn't actively trying to lose weight. It just, we were in a period where we were training hard. I was in the altitude tent. I just didn't replace, I didn't meet my energy needs. Um, lost a couple of kilos in weight and I just, was really really weak so I lost a lot of my strength and that that bike course in Rio was a really really tough course hilly but not like mountain hilly where you'd think that losing a couple of kilos you would it would help you get up the hill it was more power hills so one minute sort of effort um, up a hill uh, so yeah it was a course where you really needed a lot of power and I just I lost lost a bit of weight went into that race and I think that's where I I went from being in a really good place in Leeds to just underdoing it or overdoing it, sorry, and, and going in um, just not in that optimal optimal performance shape, ready to race. And I can't remember the exact specifics of the session, but we were getting ready for what was going to be, like I said, a really hard bike course. I think the the course had a, a minute hill in it at about, I think it was 15%. Um, and you see, you do that eight times. So we're, we're doing a lot of like short, sharp hill efforts to be ready for that. And then on off the back, we knew that the run wasn't going to be one or even a podium um, to get on the podium wasn't going to be that fast uh, on that course. I think, I think to win it, you probably had to run a 30, 30 and maybe to be on the podium at 31 low. So it wasn't particularly fast. We just were trying to get ready for that, that effort on the bike and then being able to get off and run with tired, tired, dead legs. And um, that's what our, our training revolved around leading into that Olympic game. It's um it's funny you talk about your weight there because that was one of my uh I, my my biggest memories is I uh I thought I reckon he's lost a heap of weight and I just assumed um that it was intentional I thought you know maybe they're thinking it's hot uh, maybe he's identified that if he loses a little bit of weight he he'll he'll have a better run um so yeah I'm actually I'm uh, yeah that's just sort of blow my mind a bit that it was completely unintentional I, like I, I just have assumed forever that you did that on purpose and I thought I thought maybe um, 
Yeah, maybe it was it was like um, something your team had talked about or you just thought. So, yeah, that is that is really fascinating. With that hill you talk about on that course in, in Rio, um, it, yeah, it was a really short, sharp, punchy climb with like a technical descent and, and a pretty fast bike course. What was your training looking like on the bike to, to get ready for that? Yeah, so I'm trying to think back now. Uh, we used to do two sessions, two bike, two bike hard sessions a week. And we had a name for it. I can't remember. It was something in Spanish, and I don't think it translated to something very nice. So I probably won't repeat it. But uh, <laughs> um, it was something like mother something something of a hill. Or, I can't remember. <laughs> but I just remember doing this session where I, I think it was three minutes. So it was, again, on a hill, three minutes. Uh, riding at four watts per kilo, so not not super high. Um, so yeah, around about, for me it would have been around about that two sixty odd, yeah, something about that two sixty two seventy, and then so three minutes of that, and then we turned took a right turn and went up to what was the radio tower, which was a really really steep hill to try and simulate that Rio hill, and did um, fifty seconds full gas, twenty seconds easy, twenty seconds full gas. Um, and you did that like eight times and it was one of the hardest still, still to this day, probably one of the hardest sessions I've, I've ever done on the bike. Well, probably overall, to be honest. Um, cause you know, doing those really, really high end efforts, like those 50 second hill efforts, you know, anything around that time is just absolutely excruciatingly painful. So to do 50 seconds, then you only got 20 seconds rest. Like yeah, you're breathing out your backside and then you've got to go again for another 20 seconds full gas. And you know, it may not seem like much, but in overall, it's probably, what are we talking there? So three minutes at what four watts per kilo, 50 seconds. So yeah, you, so you've done eight of them, eight times four minutes with only really, and a minute each of that really, really hard. But mate, I'm telling you, it was probably the hardest, the hardest sessions I've ever done. So that's, that was the main one that we we're doing leading into, into the Rio. And then we're also doing like another, an hour, sort of hard efforts, but the hilly hard efforts had taken the hills really, really hard. And I think that was the right preparation. It was the right sort of stuff that you needed for that type of course. Like I said, it was yeah, it was a really punchy sort of hill that really, really needed that sort of preparation. Yeah, and, and as the race played out, you were in that lead group in the swim and you did end up in the, the lead group on the bike, which was a group of about, was it about nine of you from memory? I'm trying to remember. Mm, I think there was, yeah, maybe about that, yeah. Roughly that. 10 to 12. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So how did that, um, that session you're talking about there is, you know, one of the hardest sessions you've ever done in your life compared to the actual race day effort. Did you, did you get there and because of it, it felt quite easy or, you know, with the Brownleys driving off the front, was it, was it like, well, oh, this is even, this is even harder than that. Uh, so I, I think it prepared us to a certain extent, but I remember now on reflection, um, after the race, so that, so that, so when I said that session before, um, where we went three minutes at four watts per kilo, and then um, into basically a minute max, essentially, that three minutes was supposed to simulate from the start of the lap to where the hill was. And what we learned from the testament prior, looking at the data, is that roughly what we're riding at before we went to the hill. But that was the testament didn't have the brownies in there, yeah, <laughs> and so they were always notorious for just absolutely really really drilling the start of that the bike um because essentially that's where a lot of the gaps were made like there was little gaps in the swim but essentially the gaps were really made on the start of that bike and i just we just didn't quite prepare for that first three minutes to be and i I don't know what's the kilo to be honest with you but that first three minutes before the hill was absolutely full gas and i urge anyone to go to go watch go watch the race because um, or at least that start, it's on YouTube, you can find it, that, the start of the bike, and you just see, so the group would have been probably 20 guys had the start of the bike not been like that. And it was just absolutely full gas. And there was just a long line of probably 20 people. Ryan Bailey, a fellow Australian, was also there. Um, but he, he was just at the back of it. And then just on the hill, it just absolutely splintered um, because people were just redlining on that, that flat. And I was just lucky that I had a decent swim, so I was, further up the group and sort of just it split just behind me um, going up the hill the first time and just absolutely splintered the group. And like I said, yeah, had that not been like that, we would have probably had 20 guys to start. And that's you know, credit to the Brownleys. Um, that's just been their race tactic since forever. You just go full gas, full gas for a first lap and then you assess. Um, so, yeah, to answer your question, I think 
it kind of prepared us a little bit, but I will say that that first lap took a lot out of my legs, a lot more than I thought. And to be honest, in um, talking to other guys after the race, they all said the same thing. And you could see that from, if you watch the race uh, back again, um, after that first two laps of the game, when it finally settled down, you can just, you can, you can, you can tell people are like, that was really, really hard. That was a hard start. And so to give you, just to give you an example of that, not an example, but an understanding of it. So from the test event to the actual Olympics, uh, it was the exact same course. We rode the race a minute 30 quicker than we did at the test event the year prior. But that minute 30 was done in the first two laps. <laughs> so the first two laps was a minute 30 quicker than, because, um, you know, we get a breakdown of every lap split. So basically from lap two to eight, we rode the exact same pace, exact same time. Yet we we did it a minute quicker than a minute thirty quicker than we did the year before. So it just goes to show you how much um, how different that was compared to the test event, and, and probably on reflection, what we would have done different had we known how the race was going to play out um, in preparation for the for the Olympics. Yeah, that's insane. Um, can you can you take me inside that? So the Brownlee brothers in particular, and we're talking a bit about them, but they have been at the the front of the, of the sport in your time in it and you've trained with them. They're a bit notorious for, for, you know, talking in the pack on the bike and pushing the pace and, and, and getting other people to, to do the same and follow suit. What was it like on that day um, inside the group? Was there much chat, um, you know, to take me inside the dynamics of it all? Yeah, there was, um, there was chat there. I mean, there always is a bit of chat. Um, there was a bit of aggressive chat, I guess you'll call it. Yeah. They're interesting. that I, People that have watched ITU would would know for a long time that um, they're quite vocal, and you know sometimes it works in their favour and they're they're motivated. And other times it's like they start screaming at someone and they just laugh at them, and then it just goes the opposite way. I would say this this time it was a pretty well organised group. I think so. The, for, for the Brownies, for example, their goal is to always get you know, a minute in front because. You know, they believe they can win, but they think they can win from any position, especially at that point in their career. But if they got a minute in front, then they're probably their chances of, of winning go up tenfold. Whereas then, so once they got to that, they started to relax a little bit. And then the onus becomes on people like myself, Henry Schumann, a few of the others that go, well, actually, I probably want a bit more than a minute on people like Mario Mola, Richard Murray, et cetera. So it then becomes the onus on us. So it sort of it sort of switches. So they, you know, the Brownleys are really pushing the pace early on, and then they get that minute, and they they're happy to just hold it there, relax, and then it, it, it switches to people like me to try and encourage everyone else to um to push the pace. But I do remember in that race, uh, Vincent Lewis started to miss a few turns midway through the bike, and it became like a bit of a, I guess who would crack first, Alistair came back to him at the back of the group and said, if you stop rolling, I stop rolling. And obviously um, no one in that group, them two included, wanted that to happen because then if the two, one of the two strongest guys stopped rolling, then we'll be easily caught by the second group behind. And so they, you know, the Brownies really wanted, they knew that their best chance to outrun Vincent in that race to make it tied on the bike. And so that's why they were using that to get him to, to make sure that he worked as well. Yeah, so it was, I wouldn't say it was a, a really overly vocal bike ride, but for sure there was people who were trying to, you know, for the work the race or the tactics into their favour to make sure that they were in the best position come the run. Yeah, that's um, yeah. Again, I keep saying it, but that's fascinating as well. Um, so I, I want to bring it back to your training a little bit. Um, leading into that that race, clearly you were doing those hard bike sessions. How, how was your form in the other two, in, in the swim and the run? Um, you were running really well that year um, and you had been, the, the you know, you had, you'd just been running well in that patch. So what was your run training specifically looking like leading into uh, into the Rio Olympics? I would say, so my, uh, my best running years were probably, I would say probably 2015 is probably the year where I, I probably had my best consistent runs in 2016 in that period like I said I didn't really know it at the time my run was just not quite where I wanted it to be leading into the games like I said earlier um that leading into Leeds which was eight weeks before the games everything was going well and if I just 
could have kept things there, I think I would have gone in a much better position. But I just think I was overdoing it a little bit in the training and, like I said, lost a bit of weight. And you'd think that that would help the running, but I just think combined with the swim and the bike, it just meant that my run was a little bit off. Um, I can't remember specific sessions per se, but I know so Jamie's, that's, this is when I was training with Jamie Turner, his philosophy, so yeah, we didn't train a lot overall. Hours wasn't a great, you know, it wasn't a huge amount compared to say what I do now is roughly about 30. I was probably only doing 22 with Jamie. And so his philosophy, he always used to say, you know, get in the most out of the least. So what's the, what's the you know, minimum amount? And when people say minimum, they sort of think, well, you mustn't be training much, but you're still doing a bit of training. But what's the minimum effective dose that we can do? So what's the minimum amount you can do to be the best triathlete you can be, but also not overdo it. Um, so Jamie used to do a lot of stuff like on our easy runs, for example, it might be a 10K easy run, but your last 2K of that easy run at race pace. So it was just literally you'd run 8K at yeah, five minute Ks and then the last 2K at race pace. So a lot of our easy runs still had a bit of effort in it as well. Um, so he did a lot of that sort of stuff. And he also did a lot of... Um, fast so another session that we would do is say five one k six one k's on long recovery so almost one to one on six minutes so you'd you'd you know but you'd have to do them fast so you're doing them i don't know maybe 250 or sub 250 pace but you're getting close to three minutes rest that's a lot of a lot of the stuff that he would do and then this is back then leading into rio and then another staple similar to what we did with joel in that when i mentioned earlier about that 60 minutes going 20 20 20 in changing your pace, but he would do it a, Jamie would call it a 10 miler best aerobic pace. So almost uh, the best pace that you could hold for, for 10 miles um, without sort of dipping into that race pace. And so often we would run that at around about three, if you'll fit 320 pace. And we are, yeah, we did a few of them leading into, into Rio as well. But like I said, you know, I was ticking off these sessions and I was doing quite well. Um, it just, wasn't flowing as easy or as as nice as I, I would have liked and say as nice as I was hitting those sort of paces in the year in the year prior when I was probably yeah at my best in or my best run form and um in that that block leading into the games did did you were you starting to get a sense or like you talked about earlier were you sort of just doing that 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 athlete thing where you go everything's great I'm the fittest I've ever been or did you were you feeling like oh, I reckon I was I reckon I was in slightly better shape just prior to Leeds than what I am now. And I'm getting a bit worried about that. Uh, again, probably a mixture of both. Yeah, like I said, you're, you're the best at uh, athletes, the best at, um, at lying to themselves or telling themselves that everything's fine. Yeah, it, it's really hard to explain, but it, it, it's not like glaringly obvious. You're not going, finishing the day going, wow. That, and, and to be honest, probably a lot of it comes in hindsight. Um, you look back at it and go, ah, oh, yeah, those, you know, you don't see it at the time, but you know, those couple of key sessions that I did, they just didn't come as easy. Or last year, I was just a slightly faster. And, you know, the worst thing you can do is always try and compare yourself to years prior, I think, anyway, um, because, you know, chronic load and chronic fatigue and everything else around it might not be the same as when you did that session prior to the one that you just did. But yeah, so like I said, it's not it's not glaringly obvious, but there's just those little things where I look back now and go, yeah, you know, I, I probably just made these slight mistakes here. You know, the big one was, like I said, just, just lost a little bit of weight and just wasn't quite, didn't have the same strength that I, I normally do. And, and that's always been what's been, um, what I've done well off is sort of strength running. I've never been, or not consistently been someone that can run really fast. I've just always been able to, to run close to my best time that I could run for a 10k flat off the bike. So, for example, yeah, like if I'm in a if I'm in 30 30 run shape, then when I've done well, it's tend to be because I could run pretty well close to what I can off the bike. Whereas some people are different. You know, some people can run a, a 28 minutes, um, but they can't do that off the bike. Where you know, I can never. I could never run a 28. I'm not that fast. I could barely run a 29. But I've done well off just having that strength, that strength-based run off a hard bike, and being able to get close to my my best flat 10k time off the bike. And yeah. And what do you think that comes from? Is it because you do 
and have always done a lot of running off the bike or or is there another factor that you believe makes you um you know able to run the same pace you can not off the bike off the bike no i think i think that it's more because i've done a lot of running off the bike but also uh we put a big focus on the bike itself so i remember doing a race one of my first wts races i think it was 2013 2012 in madrid and um it was a really really again another really tough one of those really tough courses that i sort of did well off and that, unfortunately it's not around anymore um but i made a breakaway of, it was yeah it was essentially a breakaway there was a large group from south of the swim um it had a big killer not soon after the swim um and there was jonathan brownlee Javi Gomez, Ivan Vasiliev, a Russian, uh, and an Italian, Alessandro Fabian, and myself in the group. But there was probably like 15 of us starting the bottom of the, at the bottom of the hill, and just people got, kept getting spat out the back. And I remember I just hung on for absolute dear life up that first hill, and I wasn't prepared for that sort of bike ride. I just happened to just really turn myself inside out to stay with that group, and it sort of settled down a bit after that. But where I'm going with this is that that really opened my eyes up to the level that you need to be at to ride um, within this group. And like I said, it was one of my first WTS races. And I remember coming back from that race and speaking with my coach and my training partner. Said like, I said, right, guys, we, you know, if we want to be able to compete at this level, because prior to that, it was, you know, people often called ITU races, you know, wet runners, so to speak. The bike didn't really matter. And I could see early on that there was a shift in the way the races were going and the bike would become a factor and you had to be strong. And so that's where we went back and went, right, you know, I need to put emphasis on the bike ride. And I think just for me, that's how I've been able to go well is when, it, when it's been a tough bike ride, I've been prepared for it. And therefore, I've been able to get off and run close to what I can in a flat race anyway. Um, and so that's that's probably been where we've we've sort of made that difference, and I identified it early on that we really needed to focus on that. And when you did um, identify that, hey, we need to we need to um, get better on the bike and make that more of a focus. What was it that you weren't doing that that you did start to do? To be honest, it was just I guess it was it was a mindset thing. It was just making sure that every every opportunity that we had in on the bike ride. We really needed to, because you know, like I said earlier, and you know, rightly or wrongly, I, I don't know. I was only just coming into the sport then. And that's often what people used to say. It was, you know, the what was it swim for show, run for dough type thing, and and almost never the bike never really got a mention, didn't it? Um, for for large periods there, um, and so I think it was just a mindset to go right. You know, it is shifting the way the racing is going. You have to be able to ride, and so I'm sure. My coach, Jamie, at the time, um, changed the way that he structured training. But it was also just a mindset to go, right, we're not just swimmers or runners. We have to be able to ride. And um, so I guess, yeah, like I said, just, just a mindset and putting more focus on that bike riding to be able to be prepared to, to race you know, a full two-hour race or an hour 50 race. Yeah. Um, and you've mentioned Jamie Turner quite a lot, um, who, who you were coached with when you sort of were first getting into ITU um, and, and leading into the Rio Olympics. Since then, um, you're obviously no longer with him and you've mentioned that you, you're with Joel Filio now. Can you walk me through your transition uh, of coaches from, from when you started to where you're at now and, and why you made the changes and maybe maybe just your your takeaway from, from each coach and where, the, where they differed and, and how the training differed between them all? Yeah, so I started with Jamie um, Turner. Well, he was like our New South Wales development coach. So even though we didn't live in the same area, I, I was coached by him per se when I was 13 years old. And that went all the way through to when I was 26. So there was a long period there. And then, and then I moved to the Brownies. I wanted the Brownies. I moved to Leeds. For a couple of reasons. One, you know, I'd been with Jamie for so long, so I thought it was time that I needed a change. Um, two, my fiance, non-Stanford, or my fiance now, she wasn't at the time, just my partner, but my fiance lived and trained in Leeds and we wanted to just be able to spend more time together and I just thought it would be a good opportunity to go and train there. And then, yeah, I spent a couple of years there and, and moved to the Joel, to Joel Filio squad and I guess, you know, working backwards. Um, the reason... I made that 
switch uh, in 2018, I think it was to go from Joel is because um, essentially in Leeds, I didn't really have a coach. I was um, within a squad and a squad environment and they have like your swim coaches and your ride coaches and your bike coaches, but it's up to you to put everything together and which was great in one sense. And I've quite experienced now that I kind of know what works for me and what doesn't, but I really struggled with when things weren't going well in racing and or training, I would always cost often second guess myself. Yeah. Am I doing too much? Am I normally this tired? Like without someone setting the program, um, you're just constantly questioning what you're doing. And so that's why I sort of moved to Joel. Um, and yeah, so like I said, after 2016 to spend more time with my fiance, that's why we moved to Leeds. And I guess the difference in the squad, uh, so Jamie, like I said, mentioned earlier, he was sort of low volume, high intensity. Uh, and in Leeds, it was a lot of volume. You know, basically the philosophy here is you have four or five key sessions. So two run, one bike, two swim. Um, so yeah, you swim, you swim and run hard on a Tuesday, you bike hard on a Thursday and swim hard on a Thursday and then you run hard on a Saturday and then, and then you try and fit in as much as you can aerobically around that without that taking away from those five key sessions, which yeah, for the guys here, that's quite a lot of training. Um, and then moving to Joel, it was probably, it's probably a bit of a hybrid between the two. Um, again, Joel has a similar philosophy in that, you know, minimal effective dose of what's the minimal amount that you can do to be the best in the world, which is still quite a lot of training, but it's, it's more about, yeah, what, what can we do day in, day out? There's nothing, no day is more important than the other. You know, the easy Wednesday four hour ride is just as important as the hard Saturday hour run that we do, et cetera. So yeah, there is quite a bit of difference in what I've done, but I'd say, yeah. Prior to 2016, when I was with Jamie, it was very high intensity, high, low volume, sorry, high intensity sort of training um, in Leeds. Yeah, as much as you can fit in around those key sessions. And then with Joel, a bit of a hybrid between the two of keeping those intense intensity sessions there, but also um, not overdoing them. So, you know, pulling them back a little bit and also, yeah, keeping a bit of volume there as well, but also not trying to do the maximum amount you, that you can do per se um, like it was in Leeds. And um, like I like I talked about in the intro, on top of this, you are, you are also an Ironman 70.3 champion. What's the what's the future look like for your racing and, and I guess more specifically your training? So you're in you're in um, your off season now. What's the plan? What's the plan, you know, in the in the near future and and in the distant future? Are you, are you staying with short course? Are you going to move to long course? Um, yeah, and, and how's your training going to reflect those plans? Um, yeah, so I've done a few long course races, um, well, middle distance, I guess you would call them. I still don't know exactly how my year will look next year in terms of is it full long course? Well, it definitely won't be full short course. I'll definitely be thrown in some middle course races in the mix. But I do know for sure that I want to. I really want to target the 70.3 World Championships next year. I'll qualify for that in Portugal just a few weeks ago. So I've got that done. And yeah, I really want to keep exploring that middle distance racing. Like I get really excited for it. I've only done two of them now. Both of them have gone quite well and I really enjoyed the training leading into it. I've never done an Ironman and one day I probably will, maybe not for another couple of years or so. But from my understanding of it is, it, is that you know the 70.3 training that we do probably doesn't differ too much to the um, ITU style racing or ITU training that we do. I guess maybe the the biggest difference is uh, obviously spend a lot more time on a time trial bike um, and a lot more longer efforts stuck in that time trial position. And so to give you an example of, of some of the sessions that I did leading into the 70.3 Portugal race that I did a couple of weeks ago, uh, on the bike I do a 90-minute um, time trial and break it down, break it down into 30-minute blocks. So 30 minutes, 30 minutes, 30 minutes. The first 30 minutes, well, sorry, the last 30 minutes is supposed to be at 70.3 pace. And then the third, the middle 30 minutes is just a little bit easier. And then the first 30 minutes is a little bit easier than that, but still um, just riding that position to get, you know, get, get yourself fatigued for an hour 
and then try and hit that 70.3 pace after already time trialing for an hour. And for me, that that sort of stuff that I, I really need. Um, yeah, I know that my top end is quite, you know, probably coming from a short crowless background. My five, 10, 20 minute sort of power is probably where it needs to be. I just need those longer, longer efforts. Um, so that was like a staple session that I've done now the last couple of times. And then also another one that we would do, because I, I often like to do <clears throat> when I do some, you know, uh, not just long course, I've done a few non-drafting races now. I like to do a lot of running off the bike because I really think it's a, it's a different feeling running off a time trial as opposed to ITU bike rides. You know, it's, you, you never feel like your legs are springy per se. Like sometimes you can get off an ITU bike, bike ride and, yeah, your legs feel like really sharp, really springy, ready to go. And I don't know whether that's because the way you ride, you know, um, higher cadence or or what it is, or, you know, it's a bit more stochastic, so up and down. So there's periods where you're down and periods where you're up. So you're ready, you know, your legs are quite primed, ready to go. Whereas when I've got off the bike on non-drafting races, they always just feel a little bit dead. Like you can still run fast, but they just never feel springy. So I often like to do a lot of runs off the bike. So another one that I would do is a 60 minutes at, 70.3 pace, get off the bike and run 30 minutes at 70.3 pace. And I often would do that two weeks before the race. Um, I actually did that one week before Portugal this time just because I didn't have enough weeks. And and that tends to be the last sort of pre-race session that we do. And then and then obviously um, nutrition. So again, still I'm still training my stomach to handle 80 up to 100 grams of carbs per hour. I haven't quite hit that. I normally sit at around about that 85 to 90. 90 grams per hour of carbohydrates. So just training that a lot, which you'd obviously don't have to do in short course racing. So they're, they're the biggest differences. It's just trying to get those longer TP efforts, those longer efforts off the bike and and um, really practicing the nutrition side of things. Yeah, it's um, it's really interesting to hear you talk about that and and to, to, to sort of ponder whether long course is your future. Um, and from from my perspective, I've always sort of thought that and we're seeing a lot at a lot now where the short course guys um, are transitioning across and doing really well. And it's, it's sort of one of the things that's making triathlon exciting at the moment. Um, you know, we've seen Christian um, Blumenfeld and, and Gustav Eden and Jan Fredino and, and all these guys and Alistair Brownlee who we've talked about. And I always looked at you as someone who is just a, you know, I don't know if I am, but definitely a 70.3 athlete in the waiting, like, your swim is, is absolutely world-class. You're never not going to be at the front group of a, of a 70.3 world championships, I don't think. Um, and, and your bike has always seemed super strong to me. Um, and then like you've talked about, you are a guy who, who runs really well off the bike, um, uh, you know, particularly at that, that high level of ITU. So I've always just naturally assumed that would transition to the, to the half marathon in the, in the 70.3 world. So hearing you say that, that you're considering doing worlds next year, um, it actually makes me really excited because, you know, I think you're a guy who could, who could do really well at that. And, and even maybe we'll find that, that that's your home. Yeah. I often think that I'm probably, especially the way the IQ racing has gone now, it's, it's the spread is so, so close together now that, um, often there are big groups on the bike and, and coming down to a really, really fast running race that I, I, I do think that I'm probably better suited to 70.3 racing. Um, and yeah, like like I said earlier, I'm just really excited to give that a go. Um, qualified yeah, at 70.3 Worlds and that's going to be a main a main focus for me. And I actually did qualify for it for this year um, based on my result last year in 2020 at the Sunshine Coast 70.3 Worlds. And had my year went a little bit differently in that had I not qualified for the games and I had my time trial bike over here ready to focus on that. Um, but uh, yeah, it'll just have to wait another year. Um, the, the game in, in 70.3 racing is is lifting again. Like you said, those guys, the Norwegians, um, other ITU athletes coming across and, and racing these long course um, specific guys is, is really lifting the bar as well. And, and I want to hopefully want to be a part of that. And I think as well in 70.3, I was actually actually chatting to one of my training partners, Yellow Gene, the other day, who's who's doing a 70.3 for the first time in India Wells in a couple of weeks. Yeah, and we we spoke about some guys that you may not think are that great of runners in ITU. I'm, I'm doing air quotes; people can't see that. I know it's a podcast, but um, <laughs> yeah, where's going with? Oh, so yeah, so you know, if I look at myself, um, 
the biggest limiting factor for me sometimes in ITU is that they're running at paces that I just can't do. You know, I, that maybe sound defeatist of me, but you know, they're running low 29s, and that I I just well, at least I don't think I've been able to run that sort of pace. Whereas in 70.3 racing, there's probably over probably over 50% of the field can actually run the pace that they need to to, to win the race. What I'm trying to say there is that um, it doesn't really come down to the actual ability, your actual running ability or biking ability per se. It's more about who can deliver on the day and who can get close to their, their best sort of pace at the end of like a long race. Yeah, I, I don't know if I've explained that well enough, but I guess what I'm yeah what I'm trying to say is at the Olympics probably there's probably only ten guys that have the ability to run the pace to win the race, whereas in seventy point three racing there's probably a large percentage of them. You know, so yeah, I don't know if I've really explained that well, but hopefully hopefully you understand what I mean. Yep, I understand exactly what you mean. Um, and uh, I, I don't want to keep you too long. This is, um, I just looked at how long we've been going for and, and, and that has absolutely flown just because of the insight you were giving us. Um, I've actually never heard um, a triathlete of your level give insight um, like that, you know, like specific insight into the racing and, and, and your training and particularly your group training. I've, I've never heard insight like that. So time literally just went so fast for me then. So sorry for keeping you a bit longer than we planned. Um, just a couple of questions that are completely unrelated to uh, anything we've just talked about, but things that, that I thought about when I thought about you. So um, we've got a, a mutual training partner who we've both trained with, um, and, and I was thinking about that and, and how he's always late to sessions and it drives me insane. So we all start doing this thing with him. I've done it for three years where I'll say, Hey, let's meet at nine o'clock knowing full well that that means nine 30. So I actually want to meet at nine 30. <laughs> um, and I'm sure with the amount of people you've trained with you, you've come across all sorts of things. What's the one thing that annoys you most about a training partner? Yeah, I like to be punctual for that. That's probably one of them, but probably the thing that irks me the most is people, you know, if your coach gives you a certain prescribed pace and that person may be feeling a bit better on that day and they just always, they always go a lot quicker than they're meant to go. Um, so that probably annoys me the most is when you don't actually listen to the coach. It's kind of like, well, where coaches tell us to do one thing, but you're just not doing the other, which does happen from time to time. And, you know, I, I get that. Yeah. But that's, that's probably the one that probably annoys me the most is when we get specific sort of stuff where it doesn't, you know, we don't always get specific pace we have to hold, but when you get specific pace to hold and then people just go a lot quicker than you're meant to, that probably um, works with the way. And on the flip side to that, what's the uh, the thing that you look at in a training partner and most admire or or most want to replicate? Yeah, the, so I mentioned Vince before. Just he just has this ability to turn up every day, and I don't know whether he just doesn't get tired or he's just able to just um, always deliver the best that he can on that day. And so, yeah, I guess something someone like that that just can always turn up regardless whether they're you know, tired, not feeling well, and just do what we need to do day in, day out. Yeah. And, um, and last one from me, um, if you could give one bit of, a bit of training advice to, to people, maybe not people at your level, but, but people who, who have just gotten into triathlon or running or riding or any sport for that matter, what bit of advice would you give them to, to, to help them get the absolute best out of themselves? Um, yeah. So I often use the, the analogy, um, of the stone cutter and, yeah, there's, this, there's, there's that saying, uh, I definitely haven't, didn't make it up, um, but a stone cutter that hits the weight of stone 100 times without as much as a, a dent in it, and then on the 101st, it splits in two, and it wasn't the 101st blow alone that did it, all the ones that went before it as well. So I guess, yeah, just, just be a stone cutter. Just keep turning up, keep hitting away, keep pounding the rock, and eventually, you know, you'll see improvements and you'll get there. And I guess, for younger athletes that are aspiring to be moving in the footsteps, you know, trying to be go to the the Olympics one day or race seventy point three at, at the best of their ability at elite level, you know, don't look for instant gratification. You're not, yeah, you know, if you're in the sport for that, yeah, or if you're looking for that in this sport, it's not going to happen. It's uh, it's one that takes time, 
years and years of practice um, of failing, of not doing the right things and learning from that as well. So, yeah, I'd say be a stone cutter and don't look for instant gratification would be my two sort of tips um, or advice for, for young or not just young people, like you said, but, yeah, people in the sport. Yeah, really wise advice. Um, something that, that me and I reckon every, probably everyone listening to this has, has struggled with because um, you always want to be better now, but it's uh, it's what you do day in, day out over a long period of time that actually leads to being better. So you can sometimes, uh, by trying to get better, you can do too much too soon or, or burn out and, and it actually leads to you getting worse. So yeah, that is, that's brilliant advice. And, and yeah, I'm sure we can all, we can all, um, we can all learn from that. So, Hey, like I said, again, um, I've taken so much more of your time than I said I was going to, but, uh, yeah, I was just, I was just absolutely, um, entrenched in your stories and, and, I, I really honestly can't thank you enough for coming on and, and, and telling me and, and telling the listeners all about them. Um, I felt like I was just sitting there over coffee with you and, uh, and, uh, and I, I just was asking questions because, because I was, um, I was fascinated and wanted to know more. So yeah, thanks so much for that, Aaron. Um, and, and, and this episode with you was sort of, uh, everything I hoped, it, I hoped it would be. And, um, and yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm really privileged to have you on. So, so yeah, thank you. Not a problem. No, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's been good. Awesome. Good luck. Uh, good luck with your training going forward. Uh, and I, I'm sure everyone else will be following on like, along like I am and, um, and seeing how you do go and, and whether, the, whether you do, um, you know, transition fully into 70.3 worlds or whether it's back to short course and, and how you go. So yeah. Awesome. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day, Aaron. Once again, thanks. Uh, and appreciate it. No, all good. Yeah, no, it's good. Cool. Thanks heaps for that, mate.